1. Charlie I hate it when my brother Charlie must go away. My parents constantly try to explain to me how sick he is. That I am lucky for having a brain where all the chemicals flow properly to their destinations like undammed rivers. When I complain about how bored I am without a little brother to play with, they try to make me feel bad by pointing out that his boredom likely far surpasses mine, considering he's confined to a dark room in an institution. I always beg for them to give him one last chance. Of course, they did it first. Charlie has been back home several times, each shorter in duration than the last. Every time without fail, it all starts again. The neighborhood cats with gouged eyes showing up in his toy chest, my dad's razors found dropped on the baby's slide in the park across the street, mom's vitamins replaced by bits of dishwasher tablets. My parents are hesitant now, using last chances sparingly. They say his disorder makes him charming, makes it easy for him to fake normalcy, and to trick the doctors who care for him into thinking he is ready for rehabilitation. That I will just have to put up with my boredom if it means staying safe from him. I hate it when Charlie must go away. It makes me have to pretend to be good until he is back. 2. Insects He awoke to the huge, insect-like creatures looming over his bed and screamed his lungs out. They hastily left the room and he stayed up all night, shaking and wondering if it had been a dream. The next morning, there was a tap on the door. Gathering his courage, he opened it to see one of them gently place a plate filled with fried breakfast on the floor, then retreat to a safe distance. Bewildered, he accepted the gift. The creatures chittered excitedly. This happened every day for weeks. At first, he was worried they were fattening him up, but after a particularly greasy breakfast left him clutching his chest from heartburn, they were replaced with fresh fruit. As well as cooking, they poured hot steamy baths for him and even tucked him in when he went to bed. It was bizarre. One night, he awoke to gunshots and screaming. He raced downstairs to find a decapitated burglar being devoured by the insects. He was sickened, but disposed of the remains as best he could. He knew they had just been protecting him. One morning the creatures wouldn't let him leave his room. He lay down, confused but trusting as they ushered him back into bed. Whatever their motives, they weren't going to hurt him. Hours later a burning pain spread throughout his body. It felt like his stomach was filled with razor wire. The insects chittered as he spasmed and moaned. It was only when he felt a terrible squirming feeling beneath his skin that he realized the insects hadn't been protecting him. They had been protecting their young. Three dots school. Everyone loves the first day of school, right? New year, new classes, new friends. It's a day full of potential and hope before all the dreary depressions of reality show up to ruin all the fun. I like the first day of school for a different reason, though. You see, I have a sort of power. When I look at people, I can sense a sort of aura around them. A colored outline based on how long that person must live. Most everyone I meet around my age is surrounded by a solid green hue, which means they have plenty of time left. 
A fair amount of them have a yellow-orangish tinge to their auras, which tends to mean a car crash or some other tragedy. Anything that takes people before their time, as they say. The real fun is when the auras venture into the red end of the spectrum, though. Every now and again, I'll see someone who's basically a walking stoplight. Those are the ones who get murdered or kill themselves. It's such a rush to see them and know their time is numbered. With that in mind, I always get to class very early so I can scout out my classmates' fates. The first kid who walked in was basically radiating red. I chuckled to myself. Too damn bad, bro. But as people kept walking in, they all had the same intense glow. I finally caught a glimpse of my rose-tinted reflection in the window, but I was too stunned to move. Our professor stepped in and locked the door, his aura a sickening shade of green. Three dot fingers. My daughter woke me around 11.50 last night. My wife and I had picked her up from her friend Sally's birthday party, brought her home, and put her to bed. My wife went into the bedroom to read while I fell asleep watching the Braves game. I awoke to her calling out for me. Daddy, she whispered, tugging my shirt sleeve. Guess how old I'm going to be next month. I don't know, beauty, I said as I slipped on my glasses. How old? She smiled and held up four fingers not belonging to her. It is 7.30 now. My wife and I have been up with her for almost eight hours. She still refuses to tell us where she got them. For dot ghost bro. My house was built in 1904. It is a single family home, wood frame setting on a concrete block foundation. I have been living here for about 12 years. Of all the weird things that my siblings and me have seen or heard in this house this one event is my favorite. This happened to my brother. About 10 years ago my brother and his best friends had started a garage band playing mostly Spanish rock, alternative music but in Spanish. His friends could only get together on Sunday afternoons. They would practice into the early evening and they would usually call it quits by 8 p.m. This was the time I usually showed up and went to bed because I worked the graveyard shift. This happened in late fall, so the days were getting shorter, they had just finished a long session when the decision to head to someone else's house came about. My brother handed his car keys to his buddy so they could load up the equipment. Everyone had filed out of the basement, but the tricky part was that they needed to walk all the way to the back of the basement, up the back stairs, through the kitchen doorway, down the hall into the living room and out into the front porch. Everyone was outside sitting in my brother's truck waiting for him. My brother was walking up the back stairs when he remembered that he had left his pancakes and ate to go container sitting on a speaker in the basement. He made the decision to go back. Now the basement is not clean, with full sight lines, there had been partitions made, and the boiler and main heating unit are right smack in the middle. So after my brother walks back, he is about to retrieve his food container, when out of the corner of his eye he sees it. It is a shadowy figure, right at his peripheral vision, this feeling of dread and uneasiness washed over my brother. We had been taught that if you were in the presence of a spirit or ghost and you felt a bad vibe, to say quick prayer or to cuss at it. My brother chose the latter, 
he basically just told it, Hey, fuck you. I don't have time for this shit. My brother started to walk to the back of the basement and briskly up the stairs, closing doors and turning off lights as he was walking out. The last light switch is on the opposite side of the front door. Luckily the door was open and the light from the street lamp was flooding the living room with its amber light. My brother said he felt something in his back, but at no point did he turn around. As he flicked the last switch the living room went dark, as did rest of the house. As he stepped out he pulled on the door closing it behind him, still holding his food container in one hand he jogged down the few porch steps. He walked towards the front gate, our house resides far from the main street, essentially having a large front yard but no rear garage. As he closed the gap between himself and his friend-laden truck he kind of smiled and thought things over in his head, mad at himself for spooking out when there was no reason. He climbed into the driver's side of the truck, putting on his seatbelt and getting ready to pull out of the parking spot directly in front of the house, when one of his friends asked, Hey wait what about your brother, isn't he coming with us? My brother answered, What do you mean? He went to work early tonight, he is already gone, do you see his car anywhere? The next question they asked, so then who was walking behind you when you were leaving the house? Five dot Santa. When I was a child, I was scared of the dark. I swore to my mother I heard voices in it. They were not evil, but they were not familiar and so they scared me. It was not uncommon in the middle of the night for me to wake up and hear whispers as I would call them when asking my mom. She figured they were just bumps in the night and typical kids nightmare material. I tried often to explain to her that it was more than that that they sounded different from one another the way people's voices do. On some nights I would get so scared from these whispers that I would sleep in my mom's bed with her. It was an added bonus that the bathroom was directly outside of her bedroom door for my late night tinkles. I should add at this point that when walking out into the hall to go to the bathroom, you look directly down the stairs that would lead you into my living room on the first floor, as my mom's bedroom was on the second floor. On one such night, around Christmas, I awoke and felt the need to relieve myself. I walked out from the door and distinctly heard the phrase look, and to my astonishment, a red light, almost like a spotlight, was cast upon the wall at the very bottom of the stairs. The light had no other source, it was by itself, and I was transfixed by it. Being a little kid, and it only being a few days from Christmas, I knew what this light was. It was Santa. How else could he get into my house to know I was being a good boy? I was so excited I began walking down the stairs to greet him, picking up my pace after the second step as it began to creep off the wall and fade into the darkness in my living room. That's when I heard him. A very strong, masculine voice. Different from the first. Not at all like my father's, not to say he isn't masculine, it was just distinctly different. It said, stop. Right now. Go back up those stairs. I listened, turned around, and what happened next I am not sure I would believe if someone had told me this same story. After reaching the top of the stairs, I heard a very loud crash that sent me running back to my mother's bed where I jumped straight under the covers and stayed there the whole night. When we awoke the next morning, 
the poinsettia lights, little Christmas flower lights that glowed red, my mother had put on the railing down the stairs were pulled straight down to the bottom of the stairs, some broken from what seemed like a forceful tear, laying in a single pile. The dry sink in my living room had fallen from the wall. My mother could not explain it. My father was worried we had been the victims of a home invasion. My sister was crying. There was nothing missing, nobody had broken in, there did not seem to be any reason this had happened. And then I saw it, and I kept quiet about it because I was so afraid that I could not force words out of my mouth. There, on the edge of the wooden dry sink which had been facing up, were three indentations where the finish on the wood had been worn, almost as if in a forceful grip. Something down there had grabbed it and threw it down. That was what the bang was. I was mortified. After that day I never heard a single voice again. I do not like to imagine what was waiting downstairs for me that night, if it was anything at all, but I can tell you that the reality was that something had physically acted upon two things in my house near the bottom of that stairwell. After this, I had never heard another whisper again. Which is sad, because in some ways I would have liked to thank the man, masculine energy, that had stopped me from going down those stairs. This happened when I was seven. I am twenty years old now, and because of this incident I am still afraid of the dark. Especially shadowy stairwells. Six dot the woman. A friend of mine showed me how to use Google Maps. I'm sure you've seen it. It lets you use satellite images to look at locations all over the world. A few years ago, I was in a car accident. Since then, I really don't leave the house that often. It's difficult, and the idea of us seeing a car drive by me makes me feel lightheaded. I was fascinated by the fact that I could see all over the world, almost like being there. I could virtually walk down the streets, and it almost felt like I was really there. I became instantly hooked. It gave me a real eye on the world. I could go to almost any major city, and I did. I'd seen streets in China, Japan, Germany, and England, so many places. I'd even gone to tourist attractions like the Great Barrier Reef and Dracula's Castle. My favorite was to go to random places in major cities and see how many people and animals I could find. The faces of the people were always blurred to protect their privacy, but it was still enjoyable to see them out there, enjoying their life, walking like it was no big deal. She must have good taste, I laughed. I zoomed in closer and noticed the gray bag she carried on a gray and purple shoulder strap. She was walking in a relaxed manner, one hand trailing the wall beside her. I bet if I could have seen her face, I would see that she was smiling. I began to feel a little sad. I let my hands fall onto the arms of my wheelchair and looked at her for a minute more. I wished that I could be there, walking so carefree with her. That wouldn't happen though, until I died. I was stuck in this chair. I sighed and zoomed out of Tokyo. Enough of this for tonight. I turned off the computer and went to bed. I got up early and decided to look around Paris. Paris was always fun. I liked the look of the city, with all of the old, beautiful buildings and so many people to watch. 
I randomly zoomed to an area and saw a street lined with old brick buildings, a few small shops, and an old tan brick church. Ahead was an intersection, and dozens of people walked by. A balding businessman walked quickly past, looking back at an old woman, hair covered with a scarf, carrying a large purse. A curvy woman in black pants that were too tight stared into a store window, and two women led a group of small children around a corner. I spun the view around a few more times, and then saw something peculiar. Sitting on the bench at the bus stop were two people. One of them was a young woman with her feet stuck in front of her in a relaxed manner. She was wearing a pair of red sneakers, like my own. I was startled for a moment as I noticed the black pants, white t-shirt, and black hooded jacket. Her dark brown hair was tied loosely behind her head. A gray bag sat on the bench beside her, the shoulder strap hooked over her shoulder. This is crazy, I thought. It can't possibly be the same woman. This is a different country, different continent even. How could it be her? This was stupid. It wasn't as if these were live photographs. They were taken ahead of time and then stored. It's not like she was in two places at once. She could just be a traveler. Besides, without seeing her face, it was impossible to tell it was the same person. Brown hair was probably the most common hair color in the world. Those red sneakers were something I purchased online. I'm sure a million other people did too. I shook my head and went to fix some lunch. When I got back online, I decided to look at Berlin. I picked a random street, as usual. It looked pretty empty. There were brick buildings lining the streets, looking more like factories than anything else. There were also empty lots, full of long grass and piled gravel. There wasn't much to see at all, really. There was a line of motorbikes and a car with two German flags sticking up from it. After more searching, I found one kid. He looked like he was dressed for school, a jacket thrown over his back. He was intently looking at some kind of mobile device. I was disappointed. I started to leave, but then I caught something out of the corner of my eye. I turned the view, and there they were. Those damned red sneakers. She was standing on a street corner, next to some kind of signpost. She had a hand on the post, looking down the street, as if waiting to cross the street. I stared, in shock. How could she be there too? Even if she was traveling, there's no way I would find her every time. Even finding her in Paris would have been one heck of a coincidence, but this? This was crazy. Was this some kind of joke? Had Google decided to play a prank on its users that used their product so much? It would have been a great joke. I did a quick search, looking for a note about a woman that shows up like Waldo. There was nothing. I looked through articles on strange things you can see on Google Maps, but none of them mentioned the woman that travels the world with you. This was crazy. Had my self-imposed isolation driven me mad? Had I become so lonely that I created a hallucination for myself? Leading the Berlin image on my screen, 
I sent a text message to a friend asking him to look at the locations. I asked him if he saw the same woman. Then I waited, hands sweating, heart thumping in my chest. I jumped when my phone beeped with a return text message ten minutes later. The text read, I see the lady you're talking about in Berlin. I didn't see her in Paris or Tokyo. Is this some kind of game or what? Are you okay? I didn't respond, instead returning to the locations in Tokyo and Paris. There she was. She was there, but it was different. She no longer sat on the bus stop bench in Paris. She was standing in front of it, looking for something in her bag. In Tokyo, she was blocks away, squatting down to pet that calico cat. I shivered. Who was she? What was happening? I switched the map to Brussels. It was another city street. It was lined with old-looking buildings, with shops on the ground level, and what I guessed was apartments above. I quickly scanned the streets. They were empty, other than a stocky woman in a bright blue sweater. I did a second sweep. She wasn't there. I sighed in relief. I couldn't believe I was getting so worked up about this. It was nothing but a coincidence I stopped, my eyes frozen on the screen. There was a building at the point of a fork in the road, white with a black ironwork framed balcony jutting from the second floor. I hadn't seen her, as I had been looking at the sidewalks. There she stood, standing on the balcony, her head tilted in the direction of the camera, almost like she was coyly looking toward me. My breath caught in my throat. I switched to Sydney. She was leaning against the wall inside the doorway of a bright blue Carrick's pharmacy building. London showed her getting ready to step onto a red double-decker bus, her head turned to look over her shoulder. She was everywhere I looked. She stood on a brick sidewalk on a bridge in Venice, she walked across a yellow bar crosswalk in Zurich and in Hong Kong, and she stood between a wing-long bank and a McDonald's adjusting the strap on her back. In each picture, she came closer and closer to looking directly at me with her blurred-out face. My heart felt like a terrified bird slamming around inside my chest. I couldn't catch my breath. I wasn't sure what to do. I couldn't call the police. Should I send screenshots to Google? I clenched my fists tightly and closed my eyes. Who was she? Was she following me? Was I following her? I wish I could see the expression on her face, know what she saw when she looked back at me. I wanted to get out of the chair and run. Why is it that the only thing that made me feel free again was the thing that made me feel even more trapped? I had to know. I typed in the name of my town and zoomed into a random street. It was a couple of miles from my house, the gates to the city park were shown in the clarity of daylight, despite it being night here. There she was. There. There she was. She was only a few miles from my house, standing under the ironwork arch that stated the name of the park. She looked directly at the camera, directly at me. I felt like I might throw up. She was near me, and she was watching me. She was coming for me.
What did she want? I typed in the name of the apartment complex where I live. I could see the outside of the building. The parking lot was full of cars and there were a few blurred out children on the playground. I searched everywhere for her. She wasn't in the parking lot or on the sidewalks, not hiding between the buildings or standing in the playground. I even scanned each of the cars, behind the bushes, and each of the blurred windows. She wasn't there. I curled tightly around myself and laid my head down on the desk. This place was safe. I didn't leave the apartment anyway. I would never use Google Maps again. I would never see her again. She could stay at the park for all I cared. I smiled to myself and was surprised to find a tear slipping down my face. I'm safe, I said to myself in a whisper. It felt good to hear it out loud. I'm safe. As I said it, there was a knock at the door. A chill ran down my spine. I had a camera hooked to my computer that showed who was at the front door, which made it easier for me with my mobility issues. I slowly reached for the control to show myself who was outside, but my hand trembled furiously. As I touched the control, I realized my mistake. The last of Google's images that I'd seen had only shown the outside of the building. Just the outside. I looked at the screen and saw a woman in a white t-shirt black pants, black hooded jacket, and carrying a gray bag with a purple and gray striped shoulder strap. Of course, there were those red sneakers. She looked directly at the camera, her face still a complete blur. As I tried to stifle a scream, she raised a hand and knocked loudly on my front door. 7-9-1-1 This took place when I was about 10 years old. My mom had rather quickly filed for divorce, but she only had a part-time job and made very little money, so finding a place to stay that was affordable and available immediately was tough. A friend of hers told her that she and her husband had a little mobile home that was currently sitting empty and we could rent it practically for free till we figured out something else. I immediately didn't like the house. Part of this I'm sure was due to my parents' abrupt divorce and having my life turned upside down, but it was also just the house itself. We lived in a mountain town, and this mobile home was way up a steep mile-long driveway. Beautiful pine trees surrounded it, but the house itself looked abandoned and out of place. It had two bedrooms and two bathrooms, so my brother and I shared a room and my mom took the bedroom with the attached bathroom. It was a very 70s home, with wood paneling and dated fixtures. There were also areas that showed strange damage, like holes in the wall that were badly patched up. For whatever reason, I immediately refused to use the hallway bathroom. I wouldn't even step into it. My mom never really asked me why or questioned it, but let me use her bathroom. Anyway, my mom was gone a lot trying to find whatever work she could, so I would be home alone a lot after school and on the weekends. Each time I received the 911 call, I was by myself. My mom always told us not to answer the door, but we should always answer the phone in case it was her. So when the phone rang my afternoon, I figured it would be my mom since no one else really had her number yet. There was a woman on the phone who sounded very concerned. Hello, 
This is 911, returning your call. We received your call, but we got disconnected, the woman said. I immediately got a sick feeling. I told her that I did not call 911, and she asked me if there was anyone else in the house who might have called. I said I was home alone, but I started to get really worried that maybe I wasn't. She said she would dispatch police to her address just to make sure everything was okay. At that point, I was terrified to be in the house, so I sat outside and nervously waited for the police, who showed up in about 15 to 20 minutes. The officer asked me if I had called 911, and I said no, but they claimed I had called them. The officer just sort of shrugged and said, this kind of thing sometimes happens. They say that it can't, that the numbers can't get mixed up, but it happens. He did a cursory glance around the outside of the house and left. I tried to convince myself that the officer was right. It was just a mixed up phone call and hopefully whoever did actually call got the help they needed. About a month later, the same thing happened. I got another phone call from 911 saying they had received a phone call from my number. I told them again that it must have been a mistake. The woman on the phone scolded me a bit, telling me that 911 wasn't something to play around with and I was preventing people from getting help. She didn't dispatch any police this time. Again, I was really worried someone was in the house, so I cautiously checked and made sure all the doors were still locked. I don't know why, but I always kept the hallway bathroom door closed. Maybe because of the eerie feeling I got from it. As I was checking the house, I just knew someone was in that bathroom. I was terrified. Part of me felt like I needed to open the door to check, maybe to prove myself wrong, but I was too afraid. So I just sat in the living room, watching that door. It was so quiet in the house, that after a few minutes I swore I started to hear faint little sounds coming from inside, like a kind of shuffling noise. I asked my mom to check the bathroom when she got home and she quickly looked inside. She made me come and look to see that it was empty and I was letting my imagination get the better of me. The 911 calls happened three more times over the coming months and only when I was home alone. The fourth time the dispatcher told me I could face criminal charges for what I was doing and they would contact my parents. I hung up the phone sobbing and terrified. I had that feeling like someone was in the house again, but if I called 911, they probably wouldn't even show up. I felt like the girl who cried wolf, only it wasn't me. It was like someone was playing a horrible, twisted joke on me. I sat and watched the bathroom door again, hearing noises like someone dragging their fingers across the door. I decided my mom was right, and I was probably just letting my imagination get away. I decided to try and leave the bathroom door open so I wouldn't get so freaked out by the thought that someone was in there. Then I got the fifth 911 call. This time though, after I hung up the phone with the dispatcher, the bathroom door slammed shut. I ran. I ran all the way down our steep driveway and found a place to wait till my mom pulled into the drive. When she arrived, she was angry with me for leaving the house, but she saw how upset I was. I think maybe she thought I was acting out due to the stress of the divorce. 
I refused to be alone in the house again though, so we worked it out so I would stay later at school or go to a nearby friend's house till she got off work. Not long after this, we got a notice from my mom's friend that we needed to move out of the house because she and her mom needed a place to stay. I was so grateful to be moving out. I told my mom she needed to tell her friend that someone was wrong with the house, but my mom thought that was a ridiculous way to pay back someone's generosity. I moved around a lot the next few years and tried to forget about that house. It wasn't until I was older that I really thought about it. I witnessed an accident and had to call 911 and the fear and paranoia all came flooding back. I decided to do some research, which honestly, I wish I had never done. A few years before we moved in, a woman was killed in that house in some kind of domestic dispute. It was days, though, before she was found, shut up in the bathroom. Eight dolls. About five years ago, my husband Adam and I decided that it was finally time to start looking to purchase a house. We had always talked about buying an older, fixer-upper home because we've had the idea that they hold more charm and character. Plus we can appreciate a place that has its own quirks and we love the thought of turning something run down into something beautiful again. With that being said, I grew up in a pretty rural farming town in Indiana that had more than its fair share of run-down houses. The surrounding areas had started to boom a little bit, with farmland being sold off and turned into new factory locations along with new subdivisions for the people coming to work for them. I thought it'd be a great place to start our house hunt. I figured we'd be a lot closer to civilization than I used to be growing up, but not so much so that we'd be living a stone's throw away from our neighbors. Adam and I decided to take a drive one summer Sunday afternoon so I could show him some of the back roads of my hometown and to also see what some of the properties we checked out online looked like in person. As we were turning off the main road through town and further onto a more secluded country road, we noticed that the very first house on the left was completely abandoned. We pulled into a small patch of the yard where the grass was the shortest and where a gravel driveway used to be to further investigate. It was painted a deep green color, which made it almost invisible against the tall grass, sticker bushes, and weeds that had grown up around it. There was a massive tree in the front yard whose branches and leaves helped to camouflage this place even further. The house looked as if it were at least 100 years old. It looked like it had sat empty for years. It looked neglected, weather-worn, and in need of major love. In that moment, it was perfect. There was nothing but woods across the street and no neighboring houses in sight, so Adam and I thought it probably wouldn't hurt if we just trespassed a little. I completely justified my reasoning by thinking, well, we're interested in buying the property, we're not here to cause trouble. We're doing someone a favor, we could take this burden of a house off of someone's hands, we just need to take a look around first, that's all. Plus, there weren't any and no trespassing signs anywhere, so I was perfectly armed with my newfound inflated ignorance and arrogance to assess this property. We walked carefully through the brush toward the left side of the house, where we noticed a well that was still standing, complete with bucket, rope, handle, and the original overhang. My excitement for a picturesque country house was building. Directly across from the well, 
There was a side entrance into the house through what looked like an added-on mudroom. The screen door to the mudroom was closed, however there was a wooden door behind it that was half open. This was our not really intrusive because we aren't breaking anything to get in way in. It was probably in the mid-90s outside that day, so when we entered, Adam first, we were met with thick, stifling heat. The kind that holds so much humidity that it almost takes your breath away. What we thought was a mudroom was an extended pantry area or canning kitchen it was tiny with one window, an old rusted sink, a small stove and the walls still held shelves upon shelves of canned and spoiled vegetables in jars. I remember thinking, oh yeah, this'll be great, I totally remember how to can and we can have a garden and, and, Insert all kinds of other giddy thoughts women have while in the throes of house hunting here. It also had the doorway into the main part of the house, and this is where my elation came to an end. Through the doorway was to the kitchen. What remained of the cabinets and sink were against the wall on the left, but they were either broken or hanging on for dear life or both. The kitchen connected to a wide open living area, with one side having walls streaked with black that led up to a half-sunken, gray ceiling. There had been a fire at some point. The windows on that wall were filthy, covered in dust or ash that made the room much darker than it should have been in the middle of the day. My heart sank. I knew we wouldn't be able to afford a costly repair of a house fire, but I kept that disappointing thought to myself. The open living area had not one stitch of furniture, save for one small wooden rocking horse that a child would have. The floor was littered with magazines, as if someone had a giant stack of them and just threw them up in the air to see where they'd land. Curious as to what the former homeowners liked in regards to reading material, I decided to check them out. Almost every single magazine was related to dolls in some way, porcelain doll collecting, Barbie dolls, making dolls by hand, clothing for dolls. I felt a little creeped out by it especially under the surveillance of the rocking horses dead, painted on stair but I figured that an old lady must have lived in the house before, and I created a self-medicating idea that her husband probably died and this was the only hobby she had to pass her time. We decided to check out another room that was connected to the half-burned living area. Through the doorway to the left was a weird combination of a molded, stand-up shower with handicap handles and assisted toilet next to it divided down the middle by a wall. On the right was a wall made entirely of built-in bookshelves. The shelves were full of paperwork, manila envelopes, books, and even more magazines. It struck us as a pretty weird setup, but thought these people must have really loved to read while sitting on the toilet. My husband and I thought we could find out who the previous homeowners were since some of the paperwork on top of the stack seemed to be old bills. If we wanted to look up property records, at least now we would have a name to go on. I grabbed a stack of papers and began to flip through them, when about halfway through the change from being old telephone bills to printed out color pictures from the internet. Of porcelain dolls. I put the stack of papers back on the shelf and picked up a small, red, five-star notebook. I started from the beginning, casually leafing through and seeing daily entries of medications taken, blood pressure and glucose measurements written in a neat hand. About 20 pages in the entries started to change entirely. They became crude drawings of twisted faces, 
done in red ink. The faces had horns or bloody fangs. Then full-on drawings of devils appeared in the pages after. I wanted to believe that a child had picked this up to doodle in, but I felt like this was something much different than that. After the drawings, the notebook became someone's personal journal written in what I assumed was an elderly man's cursive. It told of how he knew he was coming toward the end of his life, and how he remembered being just a young boy when his mother passed away. He described, in detail, how the wake for his mother was held in the front room of his home and how during those nights, he crawled on top of his mother's body in her coffin to sleep. I could believe what I was reading. Even though I had been sweating from the thickness in the air, a sudden rush of goosebumps came over me. I immediately showed it to Adam, flipping to the pages of devils and small faces and then read, aloud, this stranger's memories of his mother just to see if it was the same the second time around. After I finished, he said, well, this just got a whole lot weirder, nodding to what he held in his hands. While I was reading the notebook, he had continued rifling through the mountains of papers one stack, not only had more printed pictures of dolls, but now they contained pictures of real women in torture bondage, ball gags or electrical tape placed over their mouths, jumper cables twisting their nipples, being hogtied with rope. Sometimes there was more than one woman in the picture. It felt as if a brick had been tossed into my stomach. For some, those images wouldn't be disturbing, but in the context of our visit my panic was starting to grow. I was torn between wanting to find out more and getting the fuck out. Adam reassured me that while I was on the creepy side, it wasn't anything to necessarily lose my shit over since the women didn't seem to be suffering or bleeding. The burnout living area was separated from the rest of the house by a staircase. The staircase had a room directly across from it, and a small hallway on the other side that led to the main room at the front of the house. We debated on going up to the second floor, but decided against since, since it already felt as if we were roasting in an oven and were unsure of the stability of the second story. Going into the room across the staircase, we noticed a few more doll magazines on the floor, but not near the number as the other rooms held. There were scattered plastic doll pieces here and their random arms and heads. To the left was the original fireplace with a couple tiny vases on the mantle. Smack dab in the middle was a framed picture of an elderly couple, smiling and happy. These certainly weren't the type of people that would have pictures of women bound and gag hidden away in their bathroom. These people could have been my grandparents, I thought to myself. To the right was a big bay window, and smack dab in the middle was a yellowed piece of paper with faded black, printed handwriting on it. It was for anyone on the outside of the house to see, before it became overgrown. Reading it backwards from inside it said, if you're here to talk about Jesus, go away. That's kind of hilarious, Adam said after reading it for himself. Yeah, it kind of is, I half chuckled, but something in my brain was now starting to nag me even more. Something wasn't computing correctly for me. Thinking back, my mind was putting together that an elderly couple in this town would more than likely be pretty religious, and by the super small chance that they weren't it would have been gossiped about had someone seen that in the window. It was as if the house had held two very different personalities within. 
I told my husband that I just wanted to go into the one last room down the little hallway and then I would be very ready to leave. Going down the small hallway, it became darker and cooler. It was a relief from the oppressive heat that we had been dealing with since first stepping inside. The shade from the giant tree in the front yard had blocked out a lot of the sunlight making it about 20 degrees cooler, but we soon realized that wasn't the only reason this part of the house's temperature was much more tolerable. Rounding the corner into the last room, it took a few seconds for our eyes to adjust to the difference in light, but the change of the air was noticeable immediately. It was if we had stepped into a cave, the smell was dank and left a dampness on our skin. Once things came into clear focus, that's when we saw it. The main reason our senses had shifted so quickly, the large hole in the floor. At first we thought that perhaps the wooden floor was so weak that it had simply caved in on its own, or that the roof had leaked and caused this exact area of floor to rot away, but upon getting closer it became obvious this wasn't the case. The hole was about five feet across and went straight down into the earth, with about two feet of space between the remaining floor and dirt. This hole was there because it was made to be there. My husband and I looked at each other. My heart was racing so fast that I thought it would burst through my chest. I said aloud to him while pointing, what the fuck is this? Why is this here? I panicked, my breathing becoming more rapid and shallow. Nothing was making sense and yet, the thoughts that had been running in the background of my brain were all coming together like a jigsaw puzzle. Then we saw them. The worn and faded social security cards, a few old and molded over driver's licenses just thrown around haphazardly, checkbooks, credit cards. As if someone had emptied their purse or wallet in this room and then just disappeared into the hole. I was overcome with terror and dread. I had to get out of this house. My skin felt like static, as if my whole body had been taken over by the sensation of when your foot falls asleep. I had tears forming in my eyes, and my mind just told me to run. Without having to speak, Adam quickly took me by the arm and led us back down the hallway, through the burned out living room and kitchen, out the side canning room and back out into the light of day. We ran back down the mangled and tangled driveway to the car. Remembering back, I get the eerie feeling that we weren't the only two people in the house that day. Alive or dead. A side note, the house still stands. We never called the police to report us breaking into this house and finding a giant hole in the floor. However, we drove past it about a year later and the large tree in the front yard had all its branches removed. All the windows had been boarded shut and after doing some research found out the land it sits on is for sale. The house itself has been condemned. Nine that he swore on his kid's life. When I got married to my husband, I was a young and foolish girl. It seemed to me that my husband will always be the same cheerful, kind and loving person that he was before the wedding. But in ten years of our marriage he has changed a lot. My husband is a tall, handsome man, he is charming and can charm anyone, besides he is a good musician. Basically, it is no exaggeration to say that many women and girls were crazy about him. At first he did not look at anyone but me, but gradually he began checking out other women and then began cheating left and right. Nothing could stop him, 
not stop nor my tears nor our two children who were still small but could already understand that not everything was fine at home. When he cheated on me the first time, then later he begged me on his knees for forgiveness and vowed that it will not happen again. I was very upset and hurt, but I still loved him, so having listened to his seemingly sincere promises, I forgave him and didn't leave him. Although all my threats were then largely only words, where would I go with two small children? Then my husband had his second affair, third, fourth. I suffered, felt jealous and could not understand those girls and women who would have a relationship with him. Mostly because he never hid from them that he was married and had two young sons. From time to time his girlfriends called me on the phone and told me about how much my husband loved them and that he only stayed with me for the sake of the kids. Several times I tried leaving him, but every time my mother-in-law discouraged me, saying that my husband will soon have enough and we will have a normal life again. One day my husband did not come home at night, but since I already got used to his antics, I cried a little and went to bed. But the next morning he did not show up at work neither and this had never happened before. This is why I truly became worried. My husband did not show up for a week and all that time my mother-in-law and I had been going crazy with fear. We phoned all the hospitals and then all the morgues where we were told that they have unclaimed dead bodies and that we could come and look at them. Can you imagine what we felt like? I was sure that something had happened to my husband, and though he did not spare my feelings, I hoped that he would feel sorry for the children and his elderly mother, at least I thought so. And so a week later he came back home. For the first time in many years I realized that I could not live like that anymore. I did not care how I would take care of my kids by myself, I just wanted to be away from him. I started packing my things, but my husband initially thought that I was just playing him. He only got worried after he heard me calling a taxi by phone. Then he started begging for forgiveness, was almost kissing my feet and vowing again that it would not happen anymore. But no wonder they say that a single drop fills up the cup. I looked at my husband, and he was disgusting to me. I suddenly felt the joy of knowing that in an hour I will forever get rid of all these problems. I will be able to live in peace, I will not have to endure the insults and humiliation and will not have to cry. Probably, my husband felt my resolve, because he fell on his knees and swore on the health of our children that he would never cheat on my again. After these words, I actually forgave him and stayed. And how can you not believe a father who swears on the life of his own kids? For almost a year we lived as we were a family again. We went fishing together, went hiking, and constantly went to concerts and theaters. Children became calmer, and they were doing better in school. They were happy for us and our family. One day my husband said, What a fool I was, because I always knew that all women are the same. And why did I have so many mistresses? After all, you are the most intelligent and beautiful woman and I am so lucky to have met you. And about a month after this conversation, my husband called me the wrong name. Of course he tried to turn everything into a joke, but I realized that he was having an affair again. But my main misery was still to come. A few days after the joke of my husband there was an accident that killed our children. 
I am sure that only my husband is to blame for it he swore on the lives of children and did not keep his word. After I buried my boys, I left home when my husband was with another mistress. I will never forgive him the death of my children and will never come back to him. 10. The Big Toe Once long ago there lived a poor family, and this family was a daughter and son. One day the mother asked the two to go to the garden to see if they could find any potatoes left in the garden. Now winter had come and what food they had stored away was gone and the mother hoped they might find a few potatoes so she could fix potato soup. Well, the two went to the garden and began to dig the earth looking for potatoes. As they searched the wind grew cold and beat against their threadbare coats. Just as they were ready to give up the young boy hit something with his hoe. He dug hurriedly hoping to find another potato to put in the pot for the night's meal. Suddenly, there on the end of the hoe was a toe. The young boy rejoiced at the meat he had uncovered and thought how good this would make as a flavoring for the potatoes. Taking the few potatoes and the big toe they headed on home. The young boy showed his mother the treasure he had uncovered in the garden. The mother, thinking it to be part of a wild animal, cleaned the toe and potatoes and put them on to cook. After the meal was prepared the mother told her young son he could have the bone and the meat remaining on it since he was the one who had found it. That night everyone went to bed satisfied and fell asleep. Late in the night the father was awakened by moaning outside the house, saying, I want my big toe. I want my big toe. The father got up and went to look, but found nothing. He went back to bed and the moaning started again, this time closer to the house, saying, I want my big toe. I want my big toe. The mother got up and went outside to see if she could find the source of the noise. She searched in the barn, around the house, and on top of the hay and found nothing. The mother went back to bed and the moaning started again, even closer to the house saying, I want my big toe. I want my big toe. This time the girl got up and searched. She looked out the window, around the house, in the barn, and behind the barn, but could find nothing. The young girl went back to bed and the moaning started again, even closer to the house, saying, I want my big toe. I want my big toe. The father called to the boy and asked him to go see, if he could, where the sound was coming from. The young boy looked in the kitchen, under the table, around the house, in the barn, and then he thought, I've looked everywhere but under the steps. Just as he bent to look, something said, now I've got you. Eleven dot the hook. The reports had been on the radio all day, though she hadn't paid much attention to them. Some crazy man had escaped from the state asylum. They were calling him the hook man since he had lost his right arm and had it replaced with a hook. He was a killer, and everyone in the region was warned to keep watch and report anything suspicious. But this didn't interest her. She was more worried about what to wear on her date. After several consultation calls with friends, she chose a blue outfit in the very latest style and was ready and waiting on the porch when her boyfriend came to pick her up in his car. They went to a drive-in movie with another couple, then dropped them off and went parking in the local lover's lane. The blue outfit was a hit, and she cuddled close to her boyfriend as they kissed to the sound of romantic music on the radio. 
Then the announcer came on and repeated the warning she had heard that afternoon. An insane killer with a hook in place of his right hand was loose in the area. Suddenly, the dark, moonless night didn't seem so romantic to her. The lover's lane was secluded and off the beaten track. A perfect spot for a deranged madman to lurk, she thought, pushing her amorous boyfriend away. Maybe we should get out of here, she said. That hook man sounds dangerous. Oh, come on babe, it's nothing, her boyfriend said, trying to get in another kiss. She pushed him away again. No, really. We're all alone out here. I'm scared, she said. They argued for a moment. Then the car shook a bit as if something or someone had touched it. She gave a shriek and said, Get us out of here now. Jeez, her boyfriend said in disgust, but he turned the key and went roaring out of the lover's lane with a screeching of his tires. They drove home in stony silence, and when they pulled into her driveway, he refused to help her out of the car. He was being so unreasonable, she fumed to herself. She opened the door indignantly and stepped into her driveway with her chin up and her lips set. Whirling around, she slammed the door as hard as she could. And then she screamed. Her boyfriend leapt out of the car and caught her in his arms. What is it? What's wrong? He shouted. Then he saw it. A bloody hook hung from the handle of the passenger side door. Twelve dot the room. A newlywed husband and wife went to Las Vegas for their honeymoon and checked into a suite at a hotel. When they got to their room, they both detected a bad odor. The husband called down to the front desk and asked to speak to the manager. He explained that the room smelled very bad and they would like another suite. The manager apologized and told the man that they were all booked because of a convention. He offered to send them to a restaurant of their choice for lunch compliments of the hotel and said he was going to send a maid up to their room to clean and to try and get rid of the odor. After a nice lunch, the couple went back to their room. When they walked in, they could both still smell the same odor. Again, the husband called the front desk and told the manager that the room still smelled really bad. The manager told the man that they would try and find a suite at another hotel. He called every hotel on this trip, but every hotel was sold out because of the convention. The manager told the couple that they couldn't find them a room anywhere but they would try and clean the room again. The couple wanted to see the sights and do a little gambling anyway, so they said they would give them two hours to clean and then they would be back. When the couple had left, the manager and all of the housekeeping went to the room to try and find what was making the room smell so bad. They searched the entire room and found nothing, so the maids changed the sheets, changed the towels, took down the curtains and put new ones up, cleaned the carpet and cleaned the suite again using the strongest cleaning products they had. The couple came back two hours later to find the room still had a bad odor. The husband was so angry at this point, he decided to find whatever this smell was himself. So he started tearing the entire suite apart himself. As he pulled the top mattress off the box spring, he found a dead body of a woman. 13. The Intruder a married couple were going out for the evening and called in a teenage babysitter to take care of their three children. 
When she arrived, they told her they probably wouldn't be back until late and that the kids were already asleep so she needn't disturb them. The babysitter starts doing her homework while waiting a call from her boyfriend. After a while, the phone rings. She answers it, but hears no one on the other end, just silence, then whoever it is hangs up. After a few more minutes, the phone rings again. She answers, and this time there's a man on the line who says, in a chilling voice, have you checked the children? Click. At first she thinks it might have been the father calling to check up and he got interrupted, so she decides to ignore it. She goes back to her homework, then the phone rings again. Have you checked the children? says the creepy voice on the other end. Mr. Murphy? she asks, but the caller hangs up again. She decides to phone the restaurant where the parents said they'd be dining, but when she asks for Mr. Murphy, she is told that he and his wife had left the restaurant 45 minutes earlier. So she calls the police and reports that a stranger has been calling her and hanging up. Has he threatened you? The dispatcher asks. No, she says. Well, there's nothing we can really do about it. You could try reporting the prank caller to the phone company. A few minutes go by and she gets another call. Why haven't you checked the children? The voice says. Who is this? She asks, but he hangs up again. She dials 911 again and says, I'm scared. I know he's out there. He's watching me. Have you seen him? The dispatcher asks. She says no. Well, there isn't much we can do about it. The dispatcher says. The babysitter goes into panic mode and pleads with him to help her. Now, now, it'll be okay, he says. Give me your number and street address, and if you can keep this guy on the phone for at least a minute, we'll try to trace the call. What was your name again? Linda. Okay, Linda, if he calls back, we'll do our best to trace the call, but just keep calm. Can you do that for me? Yes. She says, and hangs up. She decides to turn the lights down so she can see if anyone's outside, and that's when she gets another call. It's me, the familiar voice says. Why did you turn the lights down? Can you see me? She asks, panicking. Yes, he says after a long pause. Look, you scared me, she says. I'm shaking. Are you happy? Is that what you wanted? No. Then what do you want? She asks. Another long pause. Your blood. All over me. She slams the phone down, terrified. Almost immediately it rings again. Leave me alone. She screams, but it's the dispatcher calling back. His voice is urgent. Linda. We've traced that call. It's coming from another room inside the house. Get out of there. Now. She tears to the front door, attempting to unlock it and dash outside, only to find the chain at the top still latched. In the time it takes her to unhook it, she sees a door open at the top of the stairs. Light streams from the children's bedroom, revealing the profile of a man standing just inside. 
She finally gets the door open and bursts outside, only to find a cop standing on the doorstep with his gun drawn. At this point she's safe, of course, but when they capture the intruder and drag him downstairs in handcuffs, she sees he is covered in blood. Come to find out, all three children have all been murdered.